Hey, it's Mark. Taking new class of medicines whose weight loss effects handily beat those of older obesity drugs, combine that with rising global obesity rates and diet-obsessed lesions of social media influencers. And what do you get? A whole lot of pent-up demand. Or so one would have thought. But, as we're now all familiar with a certain GLP-1 weight loss drugs case study, its manufacturer admitted to misreading the market for the new drug. That, and manufacturing problems, meant it couldn't keep up with demand, and the company had to put the launch on hold. How do you estimate demand when launching a first-in-class medicine without historical analogs? It's a challenge that encapsulates all the key commercialization aspects, from manufacturing and resource planning, to marketing mix, understanding the size of the market, and payers. We'll aim to give listeners a more realistic method of adequately resourcing a brand and building in the ability to tweak the forecast, as we hear from two experts in this area, Sese Abuleman, Chief Methodologist at marketing research firm Propensity4, and Tiffany Allers, Chief Commercial Officer at Mycovia Pharmaceuticals. And Lesh is here with a health policy update. Hey Mark, today I'll give an explainer on the highly watched court case involving the abortion pill Mifepristone, in which a federal judge in Texas may rule that the FDA's approval of the pill was unlawful. And Jack, who won the uh, social media contest this week? So the winner of this week's episode is the cast of Ted Lasso, who went to the White House to talk with the Bidens about the importance of addressing the mental health crisis in America. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing and media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. So as I mentioned at the top of the show, we've all witnessed the pitfalls uh, happening in real time uh, of how forecasting can and does go awry in pharma marketing. And this begs the question, is there a better way? You know, there's an expression uh, that marketers have, the forecast is always wrong. You know, if there's a forecast, it's necessarily expected to be off. And that kind of speaks to where we are with forecasting. Uh, but it doesn't have to be that way. Say my two guests here with me are Sese Abulemen, who's Chief Methodologist at Marketing Research Agency Propensity 4, and Tiffany Allers, Chief Commercial Officer at Mycovia Pharmaceuticals. Tiffany and Sese will guide us through a better way to forecast, as well as introduce some perhaps non-conventional approaches to, to the marketing mix that could help other commercial leaders out there make more efficient use of sparse resources. And this is the first of an occasional series of podcasts that we're calling Maximizing the Molecule, which will tackle practical topics of interest to pharma marketers. So Sese, you know, let's start with you here. Uh, can you kick us off by explaining the concepts of and the difference between the concepts of a demand forecast versus an operational forecast? Sure. Thanks, uh, Mark. And um, I appreciate the introduction and um, indeed my pleasure to be having this um, conversation with Tiffany. And um, I think um, we're going to be having um, um, a great run to talk through this topic. Um, I'll start by trying to define a forecast, you know, a forecast, um, most especially in recent time, um, is the expression of um, the commercialization, operation, um, exigency, as well as um, the quantification of a brand strategy. In that sense, therefore, uh, the forecast becomes an important tool to commercialization leaders to fully understand and quantify and as well as maximize the full potential of their brands, right? This brings us to the two types of forecasts that are out there in the industry today, being demand forecast and the bottoms-up operational forecast. 
And the conversation today is less so about which is better or which is right, but is how do we apply these two types of forecasts in the industry to continue to optimize um, the full potentials of um, brand in the marketplace? Whereas the demand forecast from our perspective is that it's applicable in the early life cycle of a brand, phase one, phase two. And as you pivot into phase three and you begin to file for Podofa and getting ready for launch, the brand needs to begin to migrate commercially into an operational bottoms of forecast type forecast, right? And therefore, this begs for the definition of the two types of forecast. The demand forecast is more so strategic and high level. Um, it utilizes um, inputs from epi sizing data as well as market research demand allocation information but applies mid to high level um, strategic imperative consideration from a targeting resource allocation marketing mix and payer plan um, um, imperatives whereas the demand forecast is more so bottoms up as it is called and it has more um, fine details in terms of the patient types. I'm using anonymous patient level, level data connected to physicians, connected to payers that will enable those treatment philosophies of, um, of physicians such that the ramp up curve of the models are more so relative to operational exigencies as well as the strategic imperatives rather than a mathematical model shaped curve. So we'll dive more into the details of these two types of focus as we progress, but at a high level, that is the essential difference between the two types of forecast. Great. And when launching a first-in-class medicine that doesn't have any historical analogs to it, why is it so challenging to build a demand-based forecast? It becomes much more challenging because um, of the lack of analogs to apply, right, um, From and, or the lack of historical data in that regard. So that is why the operational forecast lends itself right, to understanding from an operational perspective what is feasible, right, from an operational perspective what is going to be executed, and then from a strategic perspective how that market will be shaped, right, what are the right patient types and how do you engage, right. And from that perspective also, I think commercial leaders are beginning to seek a sense of what the potential of the brand would be and what type of return on investments they can expect. Therefore, other operational um, exigencies begin to um, come to play, such as what is the right channel mix to um, launch that brand in order to achieve the full potential of the brand. All of these factors will drive right the challenges of um, estimating a reliable forecast right um, that has no historical or analog perspective. Okay. Uh, so I know we're not kind of debating necessarily the relative uh, merits, which one's better, but there is kind of a movement toward operational forecasting here. At least that's um, what I'm hearing as a theme here. Let's turn it over to Tiffany now to explain more about how operational forecasting is currently being used. Yes. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Sese. And yeah, I would like to just you know reinforce my colleague Sese's comments in regards to demand-based and operational bottom-up forecast. There's definitely a, a time and place uh, for both, and I think you know what what we've found is that the timing, perhaps, on that operational or bottom-up forecast um, is a little bit maybe earlier in the in the life cycle of, of the of the brand. So. And previous and historically, uh, a lot of pharma companies would wait until they're out on the market uh, and have some more real-world data before they would actually develop that bottoms-up forecast, that operational forecast. 
But there's a lot of advantages to having that operational forecast at launch. And I think that's where both SSA and I have seen um, through our you know, experiences as well. Um, because it really does help with um, the commercial team, the commercial leadership team to really understand the intricacies needed to support that forecast to have the best opportunity for forecast attainment. And what I mean by that is that, again, it takes into account those operational realities as Sese was talking about, which is how many, what size of Salesforce do you need in order to, to reach that forecast? Um, what does your marketing mix need to look like in addition to your Salesforce? to be able to achieve a forecast? And what does the access or payer landscape look like? Um, and so I think taking those uh, those three legs of, of commercialization into account, it really helps um, companies and pharma leaders, commercial leaders to be able to, to better understand how to plan and deploy and allows them to really understand what uptake would look like because they're taking into account all those operational realities. Um, you know, other things that it, to take into account with the operational forecast is um, payer new to market drug blocks. Uh, that's a really important thing to think about when you think of the uptake curve and your forecast within those first, you know, very important six months or so before your grant has been able to be reviewed on P&T uh, committees and being put on formulary. Um, making sure that you work out the intricacies of your distribution channel, um, making sure that you have the right patient affordability and access access programs in place. All those things are kind of that early launch and some of those learnings. So having um, that operational forecast that you can understand those operational sometimes constraints, but also realities makes your forecast, as Sese says, a, a living, breathing um, entity. And if, if I will chime in there, and Tiffany, um, I, I spot on, right? And what Tiffany just described um, lends to the fact that the forecast is less so now a mathematical model, right? The forecast is more so a conversation by the forecaster and commercial leaders to really quantify all of these fine element details of the operational exigencies that would drive that brand to attain its full um, molecule potential, as well as all the strategic, great strategic, great marketing um, imperatives that will be developed by the team to drive the full potential of the brand. The math is still important, but nowadays what is more so important is the conversation around these elements. And the more those conversations are had, the more realistic the forecast become. I hate to use the word accurate, the more accurate <laughs> the forecast be becomes. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So, uh it's better to use uh, operational forecasting from the start. Is that uh, a correct assessment? I, I mean, I think that you need to evaluate your your market, your brand, uh, to understand what works best for for your launch. Um, my experience is that it's been very valuable um, working for small emerging biopharma companies, where potentially, you know, it's the first product launch for the company, um, where you know resources are are limited. Um, so to be able to have that type of inline sight of what the operational constraints are and the operational needs. I mean, it's really, really helpful for, you know, as a commercial leader and, and commercial team to be able to know how do I need to resource and budget? I mean, budgets are tight. Um, we all know that, right? We're always asked to do more and more. Um, so, you know, really helps with that budgeting and planning process as well to make sure that your tactical plan and how you resource and budget that ladders up to your strategic imperatives gives your uh, your brand the best opportunity to have forecast attainment. 
And so I, you know, I find that to just be reassuring um, as a commercial leader when I think of when I think about what the resources are needed in order to achieve that revenue. Sure. So you've made the case, you know, for operational forecasting. Companies are also looking toward phase launches too, right? Can you kind of explain how that fits in in that context? Yeah, I'll talk a little bit about that, and then I'll hand it over to to Sesse because um, I think uh, he can talk a lot about the the Salesforce um, mix part of this um, in a lot of detail as well. But um, phase launch approaches, you know, I think maybe at one point in time were thought of. Um, you know, in very certain situations or maybe smaller organizations. But I think, again, as companies, regardless of their size, are thinking about needs and how to be, how to maximize and leverage their launch uh, and their resources, they look at these phase launches that allows them to really be very strategic and surgical as they go to market. So looking at the best opportunity from an HCP prescriber uh, perspective, looking at the best opportunity from the brand, from a patient perspective, and from an access perspective, and really helping them kind of gauge the phases and the different levers that they can pull to initiate maybe additional resources, whether that be additional Salesforce headcount opening new territories, whether that be additional marketing spend and additional uh, direct-to-consumer, direct-to-patient spend. So these phase launches also really allow uh, as a marketer and as a, a commercial leader um, to both make adjustments. You can, what's going on in the market? What's going on with the competitive environment? Um, so before you deploy that next phase, you can take those real-time learnings and adjust your strategy and adjust your deployment before you go on to that next phase. But as I say, maybe you could talk a little bit about the, the sales mix in particular and how that's become part of that omni-channel and additional to the marketing mix, but, but just this, the rep profile and their different roles. Absolutely. Um, thanks, Tiffany. And you see, this becomes, right, again, key to the conversations and the key to understanding that adoption spectrum where you want to build awareness, gain adoption, and build loyalty, and then sustain growth through loyalty. And the key is how much resource do I need and what is the right mix of resource do I need to achieve that adoption ladder um, so that the brand focus can move in that trajectory, right? So um, in pharma today, unlike a decade, two decades ago, where you build awareness using the most expensive channels like DTC and the Salesforce, right? Things are beginning to evolve where you could do a phase launch um, using um, the Salesforce, but using alternative channels, right, to build awareness, right? There are multiple avenues for digital type engagement um, um, to drive awareness whereby you actually um, do not need to hire your pickiest sales um, headcount in year one, right? So you could hire a fraction of your pickier um, sales in year one, right? Also taking into account some of the points Tiffany raised earlier in terms of um, gaining payer contracting um, approvals. So as you as you launch, you you understand what geographic hotspots you have the best payer coverage and what geographic hotspots you do not. And then you know where to place your most expensive channels Whereas in those geographies where your um, are not your plant, your payer hotspots, you begin to use the alternative channels to build um, awareness. For example, using the inside sales force, right? Those are sales reps that would engage with customers virtually or other digital digital platforms, ad serves, um, using addressable digital present, um, paid social, 
um, um, me mediums of communicating with um, the patients and the physicians such that while you build that awareness, you begin to release the other expensive channels and you get that ramp up in your forecast and an MRI, MRI positive profile for the molecule, right? In shorter order than it is traditionally done. That's a really nice illustration. Yeah, I like that. How data should drive the marketing mix. And as you say, the deployment of those peak sales uh, reps in, in geograph ge geographic areas where you have the payer coverage, uh, where it's going to make the most sense. And then they'll be able to, to hit the forecast uh, and the sales ramp. Tiffany, how do you utilize those channels that Cesse was just laying out where your strategy includes a soft launch? Yeah, that's a great question, Mark. That's an, another kind of trend I think we're starting to see more of. Um, and this is where, you know, companies again, uh, similar to a phase launch approach, they're the soft launch. Uh, maybe they're, they're pausing on their sales force. So again, the most expensive asset of launch and uh, making sure that they have that, that access, that coverage. So putting their market access account team out there, getting their pro, their brand uh, reviewed on PNT, starting to get access. Um, starting to uh, drive awareness to the, the non-personal promotion marketing channels, like as I was talking about. So building awareness with target HCPs in particular to start kind of building that lead generation. So between having the access, you know, having access in place or at least starting to get access in place, already starting to build awareness, starting to build qualified leads, that really sets the sales force up nicely or when they come on to market later, that they will have a better opportunity to have a really first positive experience for both the HCP and patient, because now some of those traditional hurdles perhaps have been mitigated by having that soft launch in place. Sure, sure. Now, uh, Sese, I know you've addressed using data to guide one's marketing mix, but could you also just kind of address uh, the role of data and understanding the size of the market, which seems to be kind of a... Um, controversial or, or thorny subject these days when, when a lot of brands are dealing with supply chain issues. Um, and as we mentioned earlier, when we framed uh, this topic area, when you're trying to create a forecast for a new-to-market uh, brand, a new-to-market medicine, like some of these obesity drugs where there aren't historical analogs. Yeah, so so like um, um, data is becoming the new currency in marketing and commercialization decision support. You know, um, um, the anonymous patient level data um, in the US, um, it's a very valuable asset in this regard, just like you mentioned. For example, there might be a new disease area, no ICD code in this area, um, no um, real treatment markers in this area. But from the clinical research, right, there's a patient profile. And they are treated markers that they, that are, that that are being tested in re clinical research. From those markers, we could go to these types of database, this anonymous patient level database, to do um, real world evidence uh, application of those clinical markers. And then we can begin to shape and we can begin to size the market as if it actually existed today, right? And this is where the power of um, integrated insight platforms can play a role where secondary data analytics can be used in real-world evidence format to assess the size of the market. You identify the right patients that have those markers. You identify the physicians that are seeing these patients and the plants that are paying for these patients. 
By so doing, you can recruit the right sets of physician, patients, and payer to go run your market research studies on, right? So that you understand what the treatment philosophy is and how these treatment philosophies will shift over time. All of this, Mark, is related back to the forecast because then you know where the different what the different patient types are and where the ramp of curves will come from. You will understand, therefore, although you don't have analogs and this is a new therapeutic or new um, um, subclass area, you can understand what physician adoption ramp up will look like, what patient penetration ramp up will look like over time. Therefore, all of these are driven by operational realities as well as strategic imperatives. Therefore, it is not all mathematical, right? But more strategic, right? And this is what this these are the key elements that commercial leaders are looking for today. And these are the key elements that commercial leaders will progress into into the future because that forecast is no longer a mathematical model. It is the life of the brand. It is the strategic quantification of the brand. And this is how data can help us do that. Sure. So it's tapping into the clinical data there, which is more and more available, you know, uh, with uh, uh, integrated and payer databases and whatnot. Um, Tiffany, one more question for you, and we'll, we'll kind of move to a, a wrap-up uh, segment. But uh, we're in the era, of course, of constrained budgets. Uh, we saw in our own healthcare marketers trend survey, uh, overall healthcare marketing budgets dipping 8% last year. How can operational forecasting help the marketer make more efficient use of uh, his or her resources? Yeah, and no, a great question, Mark. And as I kind of alluded to earlier, it's it really allows you to see what resources you need and where and when. So to the point or to the example, I think Sesay used, when you know what those hot spots are, that allows you as a marketer to really double down on where you have the best opportunity. So as a marketer, you would want to really focus your campaigns on those geographies or those hot spots where you're going to have both the, the, the feet on the street, as they say, and then also the surround sound of the marketing programming to, to help build that and take that patient through the whole journey from, a, from awareness to trial to utilization to adoption. So those are the those are where um, it's really going to be most effective. So you can really do your marketing spend, especially when you're looking at your social media channels. If you're looking at you know any type of digital, um, if you're doing any type of media, you can really focus very surgically um, to the zip code of the areas where those sales reps are. So again, it really allows you to be able to have further penetration. I think the other part of that, too, that's really important is these lead generation programs. So both HCP and patient. And so on the HCP side, this is a great way where, again, the marketing, um, the marketing team can feed the, feed the pipeline for those sales reps, right? They can build awareness. They can qualify the leads based on certain criteria continuum. And then they funnel those qualified leads to the sales reps. It gives them just a better opportunity to kind of close the gap between the time of, you know, the first, the first call to the actual time when the physician prescribes. So, uh, and then same on the patient side, right? Uh, patient lead generation campaigns where you can do a lot of education of patients, both in the disease state and then later, of course, on the branded side. Um, which will also allow to have direct communication with targeted and appropriate patients for your brand. Great. 
So uh, bringing us full circle here, um, when uh, we said earlier that the forecasts are always wrong, uh, that's actually selling point for uh, operational forecasting, isn't it? And uh, making sure that the, the forecast is, 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 has a better chance of being right. Uh, I'd like to give you both an opportunity now to kind of sum up uh, or recap uh, the earlier points. Um, Ceci, you want to start just kind of by recapping the, the differences between operational and demand uh, forecasting, and then uh, we'll hand it back over to Tiffany. Absolutely. And I think my, my closing um remarks here would be um, to the point you just make that the forecast is always wrong. I think there's an, op- there's an opportunity given how we've talked about the forecast and to, um, to utilize these different types of forecasts to increase the reliability of a forecast given the life cycle of the brand. And the demand forecast could continue to play a significant role in phase one, phase two, where reliability is a little bit more tolerant in terms of wider boundaries. But as we move to phase three and into launch, that boundary needs to become tighter. And we want to be able to empower the um, commercial leaders to be able to understand the full potential of their brand and to be able to understand how they can achieve it, right? And apply imperatives and strategies to drive that brand to the full potential. So the, the commercial leaders are actually in charge of the forecast. They're in control of making that forecast come to reality than a mathematical model. And I think that is the way uh, commercial leaders want to operate going into the future in Fana. Great. Tiffany, you want to uh, kind of sum up uh, the, the differences between phase launches, soft launches, and kind of integrating and tying back to prescription data to improve strategy and execution? Yeah, absolutely, Mark. So as I mentioned, phase launches are really more about um, being very surgical and how you go to market where you don't deploy all of your resources at one time. So you look at where you have the best opportunity at the beginning of launch, later in launch, once you have access and so forth. So again, you would still have the, the, the full commercial uh, model in place and executed on, whereas a soft launch, perhaps you would just have um, certain activities deployed after approval, i.e., as I mentioned, the market access accounting, for instance, to, to gain uh, formulary access, start billing that, and then also your marketing programming where you would kind of pause before you actually deploy the, the sales team. So those are just slight differences. But um, again, just depending on the, strate- the strategy uh, of the brand and of your launch. Um, and then lastly, as it relates to real-time data, um, again, to, to go back to where, where Sese was talking about this, yeah, the forecast is, I mean, is the commercial teams, commercial leaders' responsibility to continue to evolve that commercial, that forecast, the operational forecast, and to make sure to use data to understand um, what were the assumptions, what assumptions became reality, what assumptions need to change, and what is the new reality? How do we mitigate, you know, our, our challenges, our pitfalls that we're seeing out in out in the field? And so it becomes this discussion that every aspect of this of the commercial team is involved in, um, and really is responsible for. Great. Really appreciate that. Thank you so much, Tiffany and Sese. This is really a fascinating uh, talk, uh, guiding us through a better way to forecast, um, as well as talking about some um, 
perhaps non-conventional approaches to the marketing mix uh, and help us uh, help others use uh, make more efficient use of, of sparse resources. As I mentioned, uh, we're looking at uh, answering some other practical questions uh, of on the minds of uh, pharma marketers, namely, um, what is the value or the role of the virtual rep versus the in-person rep these days? And another one, um, you know, why do brands often underestimate the payer challenges that they may encounter pre-launch or, or during a launch? Once again, thank you so much, uh, Tiffany and Sese, and uh, this was a, a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. Last week, a federal judge in Amarillo, Texas, heard the first oral arguments in a case where anti-abortion medical associations are challenging the Food and Drug Administration's approval of the abortion pill Mifepristone. The case, Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine versus the FDA, has made nationwide news in recent weeks as the U.S. awaits conservative judge Matthew Kuzmierich's decision. The plaintiffs argue that the FDA's approval of the pill was unlawful and that the FDA ignored evidence that the medication was unsafe in subsequent reviews. The FDA originally approved the drug in 2000, so it's been around for more than 20 years, and more than 5.6 million women have safely used the medication since then, according to the FDA. In addition, the Government Accountability Office, a U.S. watchdog agency, dug into the FDA's process for approving Mifepristone in 2008. Back then, they released a report with their findings and concluded that the approval had been consistent with FDA regulations. If Kasmiric rules to overturn the FDA's approval of Mifepristone, the abortion pill runs the risk of becoming unavailable across the country, even in states where abortion is still legal. Medication abortions currently account for about half of all abortions in the U.S. The pill has also been a major way for women to access abortion since the overturning of Roe v. Wade. It would also be unprecedented in the history of approved drugs, according to Kaiser Health News. It's not often that judges are able to overturn FDA decisions on approved drugs. But some legal experts say that even if Kazmierik rules the approval unlawful, his legal power is somewhat limited. It's possible that Kazmierik can't force the FDA to withdraw the approval of the drug without going through a congressionally mandated process that could take months or years, and even then a full withdrawal of the, of the approval may not be guaranteed. Kazmierik has said that he would make a decision on the ruling as soon as possible, but we don't know when that would be. It could be in the next few days or the next few weeks. Meanwhile, last week, Wyoming became the first state to officially ban the abortion pill. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMNM. Social media, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, social media update. And this is the part of the broadcast when we welcome Jack O'Brien to tell us what's trending on healthcare social media. Hey, Jack. Hey, Mark. So as per usual, we had a few options this week. There was the viral video filmed by Demi Moore showing Bruce Willis and his family celebrating his 68th birthday weeks after publicly disclosing his dementia diagnosis. Additionally, a TikTok star died suddenly at 30 after complaining for months that she was suffering from migraines caused by optic neuritis, a condition that causes swelling of the eye's optic nerve. However, this week's segment is all about the famous American football coach turned soccer manager. We're talking about the cast of Apple TV Plus's hit show, Ted Lasso, and how they met President Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden on Monday to promote mental health awareness and personal well-being. The White House visit featured several of the Emmy Award-winning show's stars, including Jason Sudeikis, Hannah Waddingham, Brett Goldstein, Tahib Jameau, and Brendan Hunt. 
Armed with the show's uplifting message, Believe, the stars discuss the importance of addressing personal mental health issues, a topic that the show has covered extensively in its three seasons on the air. The show, which centers on its namesake, Lasso, deals with the concepts of loneliness, depression, anxiety, mental resilience, and features a major storyline involving panic attacks. In a press briefing following the visit, Sudeikis encouraged the public to prioritize their mental health and speak about internal issues bothering them so that they can get the help they need. So, like, no matter who you are, no matter where you live, no matter uh, who you voted for, we all probably, I assume, we all know someone who has, uh, or have been that someone ourselves, actually, that's struggled, that's felt isolated, that's felt anxious, that has felt alone, right? And it's actually one of the many things that, that uh, believe it or not, uh, that we all have in common as human beings, right? And so um, that means that we, it, it's something that we can all, you know, and should talk about with one another when we're feeling that way or when we, when we recognize that in someone feeling that way. Uh, so please, you know, we encourage everyone, and, and it's a big theme of the show, is like to check in with your, you know, your neighbor, your coworker, your friends, your family, uh, and, and ask how they're doing. And, and listen, sincerely. You know, I mean, you all ask questions for a living, but you also listen for a living. So, you know, who am I preaching to? The choir, that is. Combating the nation's ongoing and severe mental health crisis has been a priority for the Biden administration, spearheaded by Surgeon General Vivek Murthy. At a Special Olympics event last fall, Murthy emphasized the need for equitable mental health care in a conversation with the leader of the World Health Organization. Prior to that, Murthy declared a mental health crisis among young people and recently said that 13-year-olds are, quote, too young to be on social media, citing the harmful effects on children's personal well-being. This came weeks before TikTok instituted a default time limit for younger users in an attempt to mitigate the detrimental effects of social media on a person's mental health. I don't know, Lesha and Mark, if either of you have watched Ted Lasso. I know that I have seen the first two seasons, still need to catch up on this most recent season that debuted, but it is really striking that something that started off really as an ad for when NBC got the rights to the Premier League and now turned into this really heartfelt conversation about believing in yourself, dealing with personal issues, and addressing those kind of mental health concerns that, again, are able to fit into a 30-minute comedy. Yeah, I've actually, I haven't seen the the show, but I've heard good things about it, and this makes me want to watch it. Um, um, and I think the cast meeting with the White House is is really an example of how far we've come as a whole in the last several years when it comes to talking about mental health and being open to conversations around it. You know, I feel like in the past, mental health was kind of limited to people with serious mental illnesses. It wasn't really talked about as a thing that everyone deals with. And I think this is like very much a step forward showing that like that very much is a conversation now. It's more of like, okay, we all deal with this. It's not just a small fraction of the population. So I think it's a positive thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I haven't seen it either really. I must confess, although I've seen some interviews with the cast members. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not for nothing that, you know, a major television show has, has kind of made this uh, a theme, you know, I, I'm, I'm at a loss for another show, um, you know, being a kid who grew up in the eighties, um, that, that really tackled it, you know, and really speaks to the stigma that, that persists today. Um, and I think it's great, as you put it, you know, America's favorite football coach turned soccer manager tackling mental health. I think he put it well, basically saying that with the country in the grips of a full scale mental health catastrophe, most people have been touched either directly or indirectly by this. And um, I also saw um, in, in the news that uh, it also spurred one soccer club to put the uh, 988 crisis hotline on its jersey. I think that was the Sacramento professional soccer team. 
And uh, they said that this will lead to um, broadcasters discussing it during matches and more awareness of the hotline, which is which is also great. And again, highlights those resources available and goes further to normalize it in the eyes of the public. Absolutely. It's kind of leading to that whole destigmatization thing that I know that we've all reported on. And it, it, it's interesting, too, just the fact that it's such a part of the show. And I, th- I don't think that you can have the show happen without that kind of mental health conversation. But then there's still opportunities for laughs and for, you know, focus on soccer and everything, which I think kind of plays into it, too, where it's not just, you know, mental health just consumes your entire life. It's also it's a part of you. And we all have these these facets to ourselves. So it's very interesting to see that this has kind of taken on a life of its own in a way that it can be, you know, helpful for advocacy and and helping others. You really find that hope that they need in, in times of challenge. That's it for this week. The MMM podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing. <laughs>